You're listening to Drones in America on Market Scale. Your host, Grant Guillot, leads the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team for the law firm of Adams & Reese. Every week, he will be chatting with leaders, influencers, and experts who are impacting the rapidly growing commercial drone industry in the United States to help us through the complex web of technology and policy. Greg, thank you so much for joining the program today. We're thrilled to have you on board. You're considered a leader and a visionary in this industry, so we're thrilled to have you, and we look forward to speaking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you, Grant. Tell me a little bit about how you got your start in news gathering and journalism. Well, I uh, I came out of uh, out of school uh, at the beginning of the cable uh, revolution, um, and was lucky to get a lucky enough to get a job. Uh, at ESPN. Um, ESPN and CNN got their start at about the same time. And I joined ESPN before the paint was dry uh, on the very first building uh, up there in Bristol, Connecticut. I stayed there for a couple of years uh, working in the sports center, um, kind of cutting my teeth on sports. Uh, came down to Atlanta to work at CNN Sports, back in CNN Sports, it's heyday, uh, where I learned the, you know, the art and science of uh, sports journalism. Um, you know, worked uh, worked in the sports arena for uh, 15 years or so, and um, you know, covering everything from uh, Final Fours to Super Bowls, Masters, uh, NASCAR, uh, all kinds of uh, various uh, and fun uh, assignments, and really had a great time uh, doing it. Um, 2001 come along, and uh, the 9/11 attacks uh, on our country uh, kind of changed the mood. Uh, here at CNN, we shuttered our sports product, and uh, I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to move on to the news side. And I came, uh, became the uh, director of uh, planning, editorial planning, uh, for uh, for CNN. And the editorial planning was both editorial and operational, so it was a nice mix of uh, things. It was basically looking into the uh, the future and trying to provide our shows with the. Uh, with the content, uh, the reporters, the stories uh, that were uh, that, that were timely at that uh, at that moment, so it was really uh, a challenge, and, and and really used a different side of my brain uh, entirely within what I was used to. But um, uh, you know, during that time, uh, I I became that much more kind of interested in uh, the technological solution, technology solutions, and this was you know timing is everything in life. Uh, it was about the time that smartphones were actually becoming smart and cellular signals were 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 uh were powerful enough that we could do uh, news gathering via cellular bonded cellular backpacks and the like um there were so many different changes uh in the technology that enabled our people in the field i became kind of a bridge between our engineering staff and our editorial staff and my whole goal was to try to make their jobs in the field that much easier using the technolo- technological solutions um uh, that led to, quite frankly, uh, my boss is coming to me one day and saying, hey, you like this stuff, you like this technology, take a look at drones, see where we can go with it. So when you started out dealing more with technology, did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine you'd be in the position you are today running the aerial imaging and reporting unit for CNN and speaking on drone matters and becoming an expert on drone issues did did that ever cross your mind when you first started using drones no <laughs> when we first started using drones uh you know the first thing on my mind was uh how does this thing stay up in the air 
Um, uh, you know, I, I had I had really no background. I always had a fascination with aviation, and that helped, and and, and an appreciation uh, for aviation. And I think you have to if you're going to be successful in this area, uh, because at the end of the day, you are in aviation. Um, so I always, you know. I grew up in a small town in Connecticut, uh, Stratford, Connecticut. Stratford, Connecticut was famous for a couple of things aviation-wise. The, the Vought Corsair F4U World War II plane was uh, built there. Uh, Sikorsky aircraft and all the helicopters were there. So I was kind of inundated at a, you know, at a young age with aviation history. But I didn't really have, um, you know, designs uh, on it. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's funny how life takes you down certain paths, but... I feel at this point uh, that, you know, I said it earlier, timing is everything, and my timing was good. So today, how is CNN using drones, and how has that changed from when you first started using drones a few years ago? Well, so we first, our first, it's actually five years this month uh, from our very first drone operation. Our very first drone operation was uh, in Selma, Alabama, and it was covering the 50th anniversary of the uh, of the march, the civil rights march uh, that turned into a uh, uh, a, a civil rights uh, issue, um, you know, in that march over the uh, over the bridge over the Edmund Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River, uh, there outside Selma, um, we saw right then the potential for drones to add context and understanding to our news product, but beyond that it allowed us to be that much more creative in our storytelling, right? So to, to create cinematic imagery on a news budget, right? So, uh, you know, I can play using the drones that we have in our fleet today, I can create the same images that, that the big boys uh, at, uh, at the film studios are creating using pretty much the same technology. So, I mean, we are now able to create that cin cinematic imagery, which at the end of the day is production value. Uh, for CNN. So not only is there a value to helping our viewers and users of CNN understand the news, get a, get a context and a perspective on the news, but it also helps us to be that much more uh, production savvy. And I will say this, while CNN is in our name, um, you know, we work for the larger Warner Media uh, company, and we are flying now for the sports products, uh, for some of the productions companies that are uh, that are creating content across all of Warner Media. Uh, we work alongside HBO on a lot of our projects, um, and so our our remit is uh, is now beyond uh, CNN. Greg, you mentioned CNN covering the Selma, Alabama event using drones. Another incident I heard about CNN covering that's of particular interest to me is CNN using drones to capture footage of the flooding in my home state, Louisiana. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Was that the Baton Rouge flooding that happened a couple of years ago, or was that in New Orleans? Oh, we've we've uh, 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 if you as you know, uh, being a uh, uh, born and raised in Louisiana, you know that it floods uh, regularly. Uh, we've been to Louisiana several times, um, uh, so I don't recall which you know specific incident you might be talking uh, about. But we've we've done. Um, you know, any number of these kind of natural disaster stories where the drone really does add to the context and understanding that I mentioned before. It also adds to a couple other things that I hadn't mentioned, right? It, it adds to the emotion attached to a story. I'll, and I'll talk more about that in a second. And it also adds to our own team safety, 
right? So um, when uh, when we have to go into a uh, situation, and you have to understand, news entities like CNN uh, react to a lot of the same impetus as first responders, police, and fire, and emergency management personnel. We fly. We find ourselves very often flying alongside these guys. Um, and so we try to work really well with these guys. But in, in talking more about the, uh, uh, the specifics uh, that, I, that I had mentioned, um, when we do go into uh, one of these locations, anytime you send a team into one of those situations, you send them into with, with a certain amount of risk. If it's flooding, it could be what's in the water. It could be uh, in a post-tornado scenario, it could be uh, dangerous uh, debris. Uh, that's on the ground and stuff like that. So if I don't have to send my cameraman, gender nonspecific, uh, into a setting where he's at risk or she is at risk, um, that drone can get those pictures. And I add actually to the safety uh, of, of my team. And, that, and that's, a big, uh, that's a big plus in those kind of situations. Um, you know, so so we take it. You know, uh, we take it very seriously. It also helps us to add things that we uh, to to make things differently, right? Like some of the uh, post California fires, uh, we were able to do some mapping, use some of the AI, uh, the artificial intelligence on board those drones to create maps, three dimensional maps, um, and interactive maps of the fire zones. You know, so now you're going beyond just the video uh, to creating tools that again, are gonna be uh, user intensive and gonna allow that news uh, consumer to kind of enact and, and, and understand uh, the story that much better. You had mentioned the use of drones and emergency response and how important it is to realize all the great benefits drones are uniquely capable of providing because quite frankly, drones can fit places that helicopters cannot. And we mentioned Louisiana a minute ago, I'm just thinking back to when Hurricane Katrina happened and helicopters were limited in their ability to locate individuals who were on their rooftops, you know, how it may have been different if we'd have dr had drones back then, which are far more accessible and versatile in their use. I noticed recently, or rather, I know you are an inaugural member of the advisory board of the Drone Responders Public Safety Alliance. It's an organization that's very important to me. I work with them and I, I think they are one of the leading groups in helping the public to understand why we should not fear drones, rather we should embrace them because quite frankly, drones save lives. Can you tell me a little bit about your involvement with drone responders? Sure, um, happy to. Um, I met Charles Werner uh, at uh, one, of the, uh, one of the events, I forget exactly which one, and we immediately hit it off. My father was a firefighter. Um, and um, I, I tell a funny story. My, my dad, when I was, you know, knee high, would teach me about, you know, how to, how to fight fires. And the first thing he taught me about fighting fires was not that you put water on the fire, which, you know, I said, Dad, I think you're doing it wrong. But um, it was actually to do a 360-degree assessment. It was to know what you were dealing with. It was situational awareness. And the drone provides that in spades uh, to firefighters. Um, the, that, that awareness, that situational awareness, that ability uh, beyond the awareness on scene to transmit pictures to a chief or some other uh, interested parties, uh, command and control, uh, you know, that might be away from the fire is extremely valuable. Listen, we, you know, I said it before, we respond to the same impetus 
as these guys. We have to work well with them. That was part of our IPP uh, involvement. The integrated pilot program, um, you know, was working with uh, law enforcement uh, because there was this realization that news media and first responders are going to have to share the space uh, and have to know how to do it safely, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, moving forward. You mentioned that integration pilot program, which there were a, a few of those set up across the country. Which groups were you involved with in working on that program? So we're involved in uh, two uh, actively, uh, Choctaw Nation and North Dakota. Uh, North Dakota, we flew a, uh, a mission um, alongside of the uh, county uh, sheriff's office uh, at a uh, football tailgate. Um, North Dakota State University is uh, uh, number one. I think they won the championship again this uh, past year. Um, uh, and so they put a lot of fannies in the uh, Fargo Dome up there. And, and we were able to use our drone to capture images, news images, uh, of, the, of the crowd before, you know, tailgating before a game, while the, uh, the county sheriff's office was able to use their drones to simply keep an eye on and to monitor uh, for safety and for incidents and, and things like that. And we were able to show that we were able to coordinate um, uh, the aircraft. We were able to coordinate the airspace. We were able to coordinate the pilots. We also did this right at the end of the runway at Hector International, which is the airport there in Fargo. So we were in what otherwise would have been a zero altitude uh, uh, grid, um, but we were able to work with the tower as well so that we were able to uh, you know, show that the drone could be safely used over people uh, in a situation or in a setting uh, that both the media and and law enforcement first responders would benefit from the intelligence uh, that uh, uh, that the drone would provide. You'd mentioned drones flying over people. And of course, that's one of the restrictions set for in Part 107 for which you currently need a waiver in order to be able to do. Tell me about your involvement and CNN's involvement in trying to get those restrict restrictions ease and enable drones to fly over people without having the necessity to obtain the Part 107 waiver? Well, so so I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things here. First off, um, there is risk involved. And so even with waivers in place, and we own several of them, and I'll talk more about that in a second, but um, even with waivers in place, operations over people are a last resort for us. Um, and they're a last resort because if I can accomplish the mission, without flying over people, I'm gonna to choose to do that in all situations. Now, having said that, there are certain times when, when operations over people are uh, editorially um, productive, let's say. Uh, and in that situation, we will use uh, the specific aircraft or the specific risk mitigations that we have wavered. Um, listen, I'm very proud to say that we have, we own waiver uh, 107W-2016-00001, the very first waiver that was given for uh, operations over people. Now, we, we haven't used it. Uh, we learned from it. Um, the second waiver that we got uh, that we received from the FAA in 2017 was for a very specific craft that was designed and executed, built to be inherently safe for operations over people, fully enclosed props, uh, 
uh, uh, risk mitigation uh, in a situation where you'd have emergency action, where the drone is actually held together uh, by magnets and in kind of a, a severe situation would, uh, would split apart, right? Would break apart rather than uh, sending that full weight uh, uh, that full energy into, say, someone on the ground or something like that. All that was done. Um, it, cr it created actually a waiver application that was three times the weight. The application was three times the weight of the drone itself, <laughs> but it was successful. How heavy was um, the application? <laughs> it was 381 pages and it was 3.7 pounds. That sounds like the remote ID but, in PRM. Yeah, really. Really, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, listen, I mean, we killed some trees, but we made some advances. Um, the, the, the last waiver that we have for operations over people was achieved through the IPP uh, and was done with a, uh, a parachute, essentially a, a mitigation, uh, uh, a mitigation to uh, that we were able to add to our uh, DJI Phantoms and our DJI Mavics that allowed for the safe descent of a vehicle in, a, in an emergency situation. Now let's transition to remote ID, which I, I mentioned a second ago. Once we have remote ID, what are we looking at in terms of the necessity of these part 107 waivers? Do you envision there will still be some instances where 107 waivers will definitely be needed? Or are we looking at unbridled, um, advanced operations. Why don't you ex explain that? I I think remote ID is a uh, is another block in the wall, right? So uh, uh, you know another brick in the wall. It's not the be all and end all in my estimation, and I don't think the simple fact of having uh, remote ID is going to make it inherently safer for operations over people at all. Um, you know, so uh, don't get me wrong. I am I am fully aware and fully supportive of the requirement for remote identification. Um, again, we see it every day. We flew uh, just over a year ago here in Atlanta at the Super Bowl. Um, and we, we had to kind of come up with an ad hoc remote identification so that law enforcement agencies could separate us from the careless, clueless, and potentially criminal uh, uh, users of, of drones in the airspace. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think when you start talking about remote identification, you have to go to that next level. What's the next brick in the wall? Is it unmanned traffic management? Is it secure command and control? I'm a big proponent of the acknowledgement of a of a professional class of drone pilots, commercial drone pilots that 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 is reached a different level than Tom, Dick and Harry, who got a you know, went to Fry's on a Friday night and bought a drone. Um, you know, you see this in order for those commercial operations to continue to grow and to reach the levels um, of, of, of good uh, that they can do. We have to have a, uh, what I think, a recognition of this professional class of pilots. When you talk to the FAA, they talk a lot about, you know, the aircraft, the airspace, and the airmen. Again, gender nonspecific. Air person, I, I don't know if that sounds any better, but um, you know, pilot. You know, the FAA has done a lot of work uh, when they talk about certification and they do about testing on the aircraft. Um, access and understanding of the airspace is is phenomenal. It's great. Lance has been a big success, but the but the training 
and and commitment on the airmen is, I think, an area where uh, we need to explore as an industry. We need to explore how to separate those that are doing it the right way, those that make the commitment to doing it safely. Uh, you know, we're safe is not a goal; it's a requirement. Um, you know, can can have greater access to uh, to the national airspace and 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 be able to take on more complex uh, uh, missions. That's kind of a nice segue into the million dollar question, which, you know, the magic word in our industry is ubiquitous. Uh, A lot of people in the industry didn't even necessarily realize what all ubiquitous entailed or or what it actually signified. But when we're talking about commercial drone use being ubiquitous, people in their minds, they think Jetsons. They think they're looking outside their window and they're going to see small little aircrafts or even larger ones that are transporting them across the sky in some kind of urban air mobility situation. Greg, in your opinion, when should we expect to see at least some semblance of a Jetsonian airspace? <laughs> I like that. Jetsonian. Um, it's, not my own, certain, it's not my own phrase, but I'm going to claim it. You, you have to be a certain age to, to really understand and, and get that. Listen, um, I, uh, you know, uh, Grant, I think you want me to say uh, a number and I'm not going to do that. Um, but I will say is you're not going to see a significantly larger number of commercial drone operations in U.S. airspace until the safety and security of these commercial drone operations can be ensured. And I, I, I honestly, I think we still have a lot of work to do in that regard. You, you sound like a lawyer talking, Greg. You don't want to give a definite. Oh, heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just joking with you. And honestly, I think it's uh, interesting because several people in our industry, you have some companies that were saying we were going to have um, air taxis five years ago, you know, or, or at the minimum two years ago. Obviously, that still is not happening. And then you also have other companies that are saying, oh, we're still 30 years off. So, you know, my gut, on, based on everything I've seen, I don't think, of course, like you said, you can't put an exact number on it. But I don't think we're too terribly far away from seeing some significant advancements. Um, I think I think at that, you know, I, I, I think we're in agreement there. I think, you know, when you start really talking about urban air mobility and you talk about, uh, you know, people putting fannies in these machines, uh, I, I really think you have to, uh, you know, you have to address the um, you have to address the uh, uh, certification of the aircraft. You have to address uh, the command and control uh, security uh, and reliability. Uh, of the uh, of the wireless uh, command and control of uh, of these type of uh, of situations, but you get you know you get into the uh, the whole notion that not all of these events are created equal, and as such, they shouldn't be treated as equal. I you know I understand the fascination you know uh, uh, by the by the modelers, the hobbyists to to use these things for uh, you know for 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 whatever it is they want to use them for. They do have access to the airspace, but they need to understand uh, the rules and regulations that, that they must adhere to. Anybody who's flying in the national airspace has to uh, come to the realization you're in aviation. Uh, like it or not, admit it or not, you're in aviation, you're playing in the FAA sandbox, you need to play by whatever rules we're governed by. I probably sound like a regulator there. <laughs> well, that's okay. There are worse things to sound like. So. Um, <laughs> 
you know, we're almost out of time. A couple more quick questions for you. Will drones replace helicopters in news gathering? I don't think so. And, and you know, early on in this uh, experiment, I got that question a lot. Uh, it was uh, it was a little more um, a little more specific. Uh, it was usually a news director who would call and ask, "Can I fire the helicopter pilot?" Uh, and, and I would say, um, "No, I don't think so." Look, there are things that a helicopter do, can do that a drone can't do, and there are things that a drone can do that a helicopter can't do. Right? Um, if if I need to transport my news team from point A to point B, and I'm in a competitive market, that drone ain't going to help you. Um, that, that helicopter will, um, you know, that said, one of the biggest things that I try to teach, uh, our pilots is the difference between the helicopter and the drone, right? A helicopter at 1500 feet can help you get that wide area shot. But I keep telling our guys, don't recreate the helicopter shot, right? The helicopter at 1500 feet is very different than the drone at 50 feet. Right. A drone at 50 feet is much more intimate, much more personal, much more emotional, uh, in whatever the situation is, um, you know, especially in like we were talking about in flooding, in a post tornado and a natural disaster type of things, we're able to tell stories in a in an entirely unique way with a lot more, you know, uh, a lot more connection to uh, to to human users of the news. Right. Well. You know, the bad thing about you, Greg, is that you're so interesting. We could honestly probably go all day. And I probably only got through half the things I want to discuss with you, which means I'm going to have no choice but to ask you back at some point. <laughs> if More you're than willing. happy to come. <laughs> Great. I appreciate it. Let's close with uh, one fun fact. Tell me what the most interesting news story you've ever covered is. Oh, I, I don't know. Um I don't know if interesting would be the right word. I, I will say maybe challenging is going to be the, 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 the word. And there were several, um, but um, I'll, I'll limit it to like three. Katrina was one of them, but Katrina was one of, of uh, you know, 2005 was just a horrific year for uh, U.S. landfall uh, uh, hurricanes. Yes, it you was. Know, immediately following Katrina was Rita and then Wilma. Right. Uh, and at, you know, at one point we had 225 people in and around uh, New Orleans covering the aftermath. As a matter of fact, CNN started uh, a New Orleans based bureau uh, that covered the story for the next three years uh, directly from New Orleans. I myself spent uh, a month uh, in that bureau. And and, you know, even six months after Katrina, the amazing stuff was all the all the impacts that were still extremely evident. I mean, there's still uh, impacts today, uh, you know, to uh, the the impact of Katrina. Um, Katrina was definitely one of those, the most challenging, you know, the, simply be because, because it was like a war zone. When we put 225 people there, we had to feed them, clothe them, provide them with safety, provide them with medical uh, resources, uh, provide them with a place to sleep. We actually... At that point, um, uh, rented an entire hotel and provided uh, a cooking staff, provided a water uh, water uh, 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 system, provided um, all uh, you know all the uh, all the food and all that kind of stuff. We used about two thirds of the room, and I think the uh, at that point I think FEMA used the rest uh, of the rooms. But that was the kind of most challenging uh, news event. But there were others. I mean, look, enduring freedom, freedom, the war on terror was something that for the, the, the extent of my 
uh, time on the directly on the news side was something that we dealt with virtually every day. Uh, and then one that was, you know, particularly sad for me was uh, the space shuttle Columbia. Um, you know, because, you know, we all grew up with the space shuttles uh, and seeing a situation like that was, um, uh, you know, was uh, was particularly uh, hard for me to, to deal with. I mean, so much of what you do on the news side is dealing with um, tragedy uh, that after a while, and I think this probably happened to me too, after a while, you just, you know, you, you just can't deal with it anymore. Um, it's, it's, uh, a lot of tough stuff when you're covering the news. Well, I definitely hear what you're saying, Greg, but I think all of us appreciate the fact that you were put in those situations because you've done a great job reporting on them. And that's certainly no exception for the commercial drone industry. Like I said, you're a widely recognized leader and visionary and speaker. And I look forward to seeing you around the speaking conferences as well as other industry events. So thank you again for taking the time to stop by. And we look forward to having you on the program soon in the future. My pleasure.